there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. I got to conduct some market research here. I'm going to play you this clip and I want you to just react. Don't think about it. Your honest knee-jerk reaction, honest opinion. I need a better sense of who I'm talking to. I want to make sure we're aligned spiritually. The clip is from the campfire scene in Blazing Saddles. Uh, The audio, obviously. Blazing Saddles, Mel Brooks movie, 1974. Gene Wilder, Cleavon Little, one of the best comedies ever made. One of the best movies ever made. Full stop. Problematic? Yes. Absolutely. Excuse me while I whip this out. Ain't nobody going to reboot Blazing Saddles. Okay, campfire scene. Bunch of dudes in cowboy hats sitting around a campfire eating beans. That's the setup. Market research. Give me your honest reaction. Here we go. Specifically... (laughs) Specifically, I'm curious if you agree that this is the funniest 10 seconds in world history. Come on. Don't be elitist. It's more like 60 seconds, actually. How about some more beans, Mr. Taggart? I'd say you've had enough. You show this scene to me 10,000 times and I will laugh like an idiot. I will laugh like an eight-year-old. 10,000 times. I need to give you a better sense of who's talking to you. This may shock you. If you're driving, you may want to pull off to the side of the road before I tell you this. But I am historically immature. Like world historically immature. I read an interview once with John Cougar Mellencamp and they were razzing him about how he dates women much younger than him. And he repeated that old slick line about how ideally an older guy like him, he should date a woman half his age plus seven. That's the equation. Half your age plus seven. When you're 50, date a 32-year-old, etc. Similarly, maturity-wise, I act or at least think, half my age, minus seven. Right now, I am spiritually 14 years old. Blazing Saddles aside, the single most accurate distillation of my aura is the Beavis and Butthead episode where Beavis and Butthead aren't allowed to laugh and Coach Buzzcut is teaching sex education. We're going to be talking about the penis. We'll be talking about the vagina. Do you think that's funny, butthead? Do you find it amusing that we'll be talking about the testicles? The way Coach leans into the frame when he yells, the penis is just stupendous. I thought long and hard about the best way to convey to you 
my own personal proprietary brand of immaturity. I have two thoughts. Thought number one, here's a partial list of fantasy sports team names I have used in the past 20 years. This is relevant. Here we go. The Dirty Sanchez Posse, Wanton Pantslessness, Kicked in the Taco. We've discussed that. Moises Alou's Hands. Google it. Uh, Sir Vixelot. Ugh. Uh, Maxi Priest Holmes. Uh, grab some Saku Koivu. I tried hockey for like one season. I don't know shit about hockey. That name was the highlight. Them Heavy People. That was football. Kate Bush reference. Sophisticated. Bodacious Tatis is baseball. It's less sophisticated. Le Petit Mort, also baseball. That's the best name I've ever come up with for anything. I don't mind telling you. That's incredible. It's French. Actually, I'm not explaining that to you. And finally, the six-foot kayak. That's Souls of Mischief. The Oakland rap crew, Souls of Mischief. Let's say that's medium sophisticated. When they play, they bet she playing water polo About to start a riot at the height By the Coliseum, West Korea, I'm like, some go I see it's all fire She said, what's that in your sweatpants? A six-foot kayak? Outstanding. Thought number two. Here's how mature I am historically. My buddy Dan, who first wrote me into fantasy baseball, my buddy Dan once told me a story about his older brother, Dan's older brother, when he was in high school in the early 90s. After listening to a ton of NWA and Ice Cube and so forth, Dan's older brother wrote and performed and somehow recorded his own original rap song called The Dick is in Demand. I have never heard this song. It's unclear whether the tape still exists. I cannot play The Dick is in Demand for you. I apologize. But Dan told me this story. Dan said those five words to me somewhere between 1999 and 2001. And I swear to you, every day of my life since to this day, I think about The Dick is in Demand three to five times a day. Easy. Whenever nothing's going on, whenever I am not otherwise occupied, it just pops into my head. The dick is in demand. It's like the desktop wallpaper of my brain. I just imagine this song. I just contemplate the sophisticated notion of the dick as an economic entity, the elasticity the fluctuating demand. The Dick Rhodes, three years of a point this week based on robust trading and Camaros down by the lake. This is my truth. I am 14 years old, spiritually, right now, married, three kids and a mortgage. It's suboptimal. I'm glad that we better understand each other. I'm glad you have some idea now of how important it was to me then when I heard this for the first time. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this week, we're talking about What's My Age Again by Blink-182 from their 1999 album, Enema of the State. An album title, a band, a song after my own heart. And that's about the time she walked away from me. Nobody likes you when you're 23. And I still more amused by TV shows. Did you know that line was, and I'm still more amused by TV shows? 
I love this song for 22 years, and I never looked that up. In my head, I just went, TV shows. Clearly, I had more important things to think about. What the hell is ADD? My friends say I should act my age. What's my age again? What's my age again? What's My Age Again came out in the spring of 1999. I was not quite 21 years old when I first heard this song. My sense of things at the time was that nobody much liked me, and I sensed that people liked me even less when I turned 23. Girls especially liked me less. What's My Age Again is a song about immature boys and the girls who hate them. It's about immaturity as the antithesis, as the death of romance. To my credit, I figured out that immaturity was the death of romance when I was in junior high, when I was actually 14 or so. Quite traumatic, this realization. So I'm on the bus home from junior high, right? And this buddy of mine, let's call him Dysentery Gary. Gary lived in my neighborhood and he was a bit of a ladies' man. But on this day, on the bus ride home, Gary is sitting by himself, silent, looking forlorn, looking distraught. He's not crying, but the vibe is bad. And I'm just sitting there, concerned, looking at Gary, looking sad. And don't ask me why I bothered to remember this, but on the radio, a cover of Alice Cooper's Only Women Bleed was playing on the bus radio. Shout out WMMS in Cleveland. A 1990 cover of Alice Cooper's 70s hit Only Women Bleed by a group called Favorite Angel. I am finally looking this up today after like 30 years. Never heard it again. This is Favorite Angel's only song. Why do I remember this? But yeah, picture a confused 14-year-old watching a sad 14-year-old listen to this. So we get off the bus and I go to Gary's house. We're in his bedroom and Gary explains to me that he's sad because his girlfriend dumped him. But he gets angry as he's telling me why he's sad because his girlfriend broke up with him because he was immature. She called him immature. And Gary, in fact, gets irate recounting this conversation. And Gary goes to his dresser and he pulls out a pair of underwear, clean underwear, tidy whities And Gary puts this underwear on his head and starts dancing angrily around the room going, I'm immature, I'm immature, I'm immature. I swear to God. And once again, I'm just sitting there dumbfounded. Like, dude, I'm just here to play Pat Riley basketball. Gary was the first kid I knew with the Sega Genesis. But that's the day I learned. Chicks aren't into immature guys. Did I act on? Did I capitalize on this information? Fuck no, enough about me. Blink-182 formed in Southern California in the summer of 1992. High school kids from the suburbs of San Diego. Original lineup was Tom DeLong on guitar and vocals, Mark Hoppus on bass and vocals, and Scott Rayner on drums. They called themselves just Blink until some other band in Ireland named Blink threatened to sue them. Ergo, Blink-182. They swear the 182 doesn't mean anything. If that number does have a secret meaning, it's probably gross. Their first show is at a bar called the Gorilla Pit. <laughs> Nobody showed up. And after three songs, the bartender gave them free Snapple if they'd stop playing. So they stopped. The band improves. The band makes a few demo tapes. In 1994, Blink-182 starts selling a glorified demo tape basically called Buddha, which is, thankfully, less problematic. 
spiritually at least, than the name Buddha would imply. Almost 20 years later, the website Music Radar asked Tom DeLonge what his influences were in these early days. And Tom said, it would have been strictly the descendants. I was trying to emulate that band. Really punchy guitars, fast, simple, and formulaic nursery rhyme love songs. So, the descendants. I want to be stereotyped. I want to be classified. Descendants, or The Descendants, Choose Your Own Adventure, formed in the late 70s in Southern California. Their first official album, Milo Goes to College, came out in 1982. Listen to that today. It's fantastic. A landmark for pop punk. A landmark for putting the word college in the title of your punk rock album. A landmark for snotty but semi-vulnerable punk rock about. And also for the suburbs. For example, this song is called Suburban Home. It sounds sarcastic, but maybe it's not. There's a documentary about the Descendants came out in 2013 called Filmage, and Mark Hoppus shows up as a talking head and calls the Descendants the punk rock beach boys. So there you go. Early Blink-182 aspires to SoCal pop-punk greatness, so think Bad Religion and Pennywise and the Vandals and No Effects. No Effects from L.A., who started putting out records in the 80s. Their second album from 89 is called S&M Airlines. The album cover is ridiculous. No Effects have perhaps the clearest spiritual connection to Blink-182, given the don't-act-your-age ethos, given the extra-juvenile juvenilia, the silliness alongside the snottiness, the poop and the pee, and so forth. Parents just don't understand, and neither do the ladies. This song is off the 1991 NoFX album, Ribbed. See if you can guess what the cover looks like. The song's called Shower Days. It's about how NoFX frontman Fat Mike doesn't like the days when he has to take a shower. My girlfriend tells me that No Effects co-wrote an autobiography, came out in 2016, called No Effects, The Hepatitis Bathtub and Other Stories. It's quite possibly the gnarliest and grotiest band biography I've ever read. And I'm here to tell you that I don't think this song is sarcastic in the slightest. What's every 24 hours? I'm supposed to take a shower. That's not the way I do it. That's about the time she walked away from me. This is the greatness and the grotiness to which young Blink-182 aspires on Buddha. It's okay. It's a demo. It's mean-spirited in a good-natured way, if that makes any sense. Here's our friend Mark Hoppus singing a song called Fentuzler. He's singing to a lady friend. It's not going well. Tom's guitar solo doesn't go so great either, if we're honest, though if you squint, you can hear the prototype to a guitar riff that he will put to far more effective use later. In the meantime, for Tom's part, he's tired of being strung along himself. This song's called Romeo and Rebecca. I like to imagine Rebecca just asked him to take a bath. I'm a 
You can roughly divide early Blink-182 songs into two categories. Girls are a waste of time versus girls have decided I am a waste of time. Both approaches have their merits. Tom and Mark, as distinct songwriters and singers, both have their merits as well. Tom is the higher and more explicitly punk nasal whine. Mark's a little more deadpan, a little droll, a little more tuneful to my ears. What they share what they hone and magnify in one another, especially when they're bantering on stage at great length, is a devotion to potty humor, to masturbation humor, so absolute that it approaches a sort of religious ecstasy, a monastic devotion to onanism. We're talking about dudes who waited until their mid to late 20s to call an album, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. We're talking about dudes who named one of their most consequential tours the Poo Poo Pee Pee Tour. Capital P-O-O, capital P-O-O, space, capital P-E-E, capital P-E-E, tour. We're talking about dudes who named their holding company Poo Poo Butt Incorporated. Capital P-O-O, space, capital P-O-O, space, butt incorporated. As Tom once explained, we did it because it was the most immature, dumbest thing ever. We thought it would be funny to have our accountants, managers, and attorneys having to say that over the phone every day. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And right now we're talking about these dudes when they're just out of their actual teens. No major label deal yet, no accountants or attorneys yet, no wives or children yet. In 1995, Blink-182 put out an album called Cheshire Cat. Mark out most of the good songs, including the one called M&M's. My love, life was getting so bland. There are only so many ways I can make love with my hand. He's singing to a lady. He's trying to convince a lady that he's not a waste of time. It's astounding, really, how convincing he sounds. Is this going to be the end? Or are you going to be my new girlfriend? I said Mark was a little more tuneful. Best song on Cheshire Cat is a Mark song called Wasting Time. He's infatuated with a lady. He is envisioning the ideal romantic relationship with this lady. He's going to rhyme something with modern art here. You have 10 seconds or so to guess what. Starting now. We talk about And yet this song is genuinely affecting, tender, 
romantic. Is it well-recorded? Not really. Is it undeniable, all-time, top-tier, God-level pop punk? Not yet. Is it lyrically clever? Fuck no. Blink-182 are not clever. No American band in rock and roll history is less clever than Blink-182. No American band in rock and roll history has worked harder to prove that being clever is overrated. Fuck being clever. Rhyme fart with art, if that's how you feel. Rhyme fart with art if you think that's how you'll get the girl. Because historically, this never worked for me. This never worked for me either. Nope. Sometimes I sit at home and wonder if she's sitting at home thinking of me and wondering if I'm sitting at home thinking about her or am I just wasting my time? That part's a little clever though, right? A little bit. Anyway, Cheshire Cat ends with Tom singing a song called Depends. They've got great rapport, Mark and Tom. When the song's over, they do a little bit of the I Speak Jive bit from Airplane. Also one of the funniest movies ever made. Also problematic. All right, let's get these knuckleheads a major label deal, shall we? Later on in the show, we'll be talking to Dan Ozzy, who's written a great book called Sellout, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore, 1994 to 2007. 11 chapters and 11 underground bands making their major label debut albums. That's Green Day, Jimmy Eat World, Thursday, The Donnas, My Chemical Romance, etc. A lot of the time, this decision to jump from an indie label to a major to thereby sell out to submit oneself to the mainstream alt-rock machine. This decision is often an agonizing, cataclysmic act of self-loathing from the band's perspective and abject betrayal from the band's fans' perspective. So think Green Day. Blink-182's clearest predecessors as pop-punk superstars, just as a matter of scale, right? Green Day grew up in the iconic Bay Area punk scene, Sign a more or less handshake deal with the iconic Lookout Records. Play famous shows at the iconic Berkeley venue 924 Gilman. And get glowing write-ups in the iconic punk zine Maximum Rock and Roll. Then Green Day jumped to a major and put out their album Dookie on Reprise Records in 1994. And eventually sell nearly 20 million copies of Dookie and become international punk rock superstars. But they are also denounced by some percentage of their vehemently anti-major label Bay Area punk fan base. And they are spit on at their shows, but not at 924 Gilman because they are excommunicated from 924 Gilman and they are lambasted as corporate traitors in the pages of Maximum Rock and Roll. It's heartbreaking. Or you're as heartbroken as you can be on behalf of dudes who sold 20 million copies of one record. They'll live. Actually, for me, the most agonizing story in this book is about the band Jawbreaker. Also Bay Area punk royalty, but a little more cerebral, less bouncy, trending more toward the quote-unquote emo side of things. Jawbreaker swore up and down for years, often from the stage, that they would never sell out, never disappoint their fans, never sign to a major label. And then they signed to a major label, 
to put out their fourth album, Dear You, in 1995. Jawbreaker signed to Geffen, to DGC, home of Nirvana, home of Nevermind. This is a great idea from any sort of commercial standpoint, but there's this mortifying scene in this sellout book where Jawbreaker's new label tries to convince the band to put a new, cleaner, shinier, more radio-friendly version of their old song, Boxcar, on this new record, Dear You. Boxcar had been a standout on Jawbreaker's last album, the last indie album, 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. But if they put a new, improved Boxcar on Dear You, it could get on the radio. It could get on MTV. It could be their breakout hit, their Smells Like Teen Spirit, or their Longview. But Dan writes... Jawbreakers shot the idea down. They felt it would be a betrayal to their loyal fans who had earned some ownership of the song as well. Boxcar does not appear on Dear You, which turns out to be a colossal flop, and Jawbreaker break up and never put out another album again. There was a band literally called Jawbreaker Reunion for years before the actual Jawbreaker got around to reuniting for occasional festivals and shit. Here's how the chorus to Boxcar starts, by the way. Good Lord. And this tragic tale, in turn, made me think of the band Face to Face, a SoCal pop punk band formed in the early 90s, rad shout along hooks, a palpable warmth, usually. You hear a ton of Face to Face in Blink 182 as well. And I flash back to this confusing moment from somewhere in my teenage years when I was listening to the Face to Face album Big Choice. Also came out in 95, also their major label debut, as it turned out. And there was this confusing, to me, bonus track skit situation in which the band is arguing with an English-accented guy at their label who wants to put one of their old songs disconnected on their new record because the old indie version's getting radio play and a new shiny version could get even more radio play and be their big hit, their long view, their basket case. But the band's saying they won't do it for basically the same reason Jawbreaker didn't. Another thing, another reason for people to call us sellouts. Yeah, we don't want to um, lose the credibility wait, with our following and all Just that. a second, don't talk to me about sellouts. I run a record company here. As a 17-year-old, the finer points of this debate were completely lost on me. Though, of course, back then... Pretty much everything was lost on me, except, well, never mind. I think you're absolutely wrong. I think we've got to do this, and it's the best uh, idea. Look, I don't want to do it. Hey, no offense, Phil, but there's no way in hell this song is going on this record. And then Face to Face play the new shiny version of Disconnected as a bonus track on the Big Choice album. That's the joke. That's the compromise. You don't know. The other bonus track on that record is a Descendants cover, actually. I heard Disconnected by Face to Face quite a bit. As a teenager, I did not hear Boxcar by Jawbreaker at all as a teenager. You want to get played on the radio on a junior high bus in suburban Cleveland? You do what you have to do. In fact, to roughly paraphrase Michael Clayton, when you sell out, I'm the guy who buys. I'm the guy you sell out to. You know what other song I heard? quite a bit as a teenager. There's that riff. 
There's a far more effective version of that riff. Blink-182's own major label debut album from 1997 is called Dude Ranch. It had not occurred to me until Dan mentions it in his book that the title Dude Ranch might have an explicit masturbatory aspect, that it might be Dude Ranch as in the salad dressing. I kind of wish Dan had mentioned that. I apologize for mentioning it to you. And of course, Blink-182's breakout hit, their long view, is a little tune called Damn It. Mark sings this song. He sounds way less deadpan than usual. The band sounds 10,000 feet tall and majestically shiny. And I will argue that Blink-182 became an undeniable all-time top-tier god-level pop-punk band specifically on the words, That Guy. It's the way Mark sings the words, that guy, the way he spits them out, but spits them out melodically, almost warmly. That's the moment it all clicks. Scott Rayner is still playing drums. Blink-182 don't even have their canonical drummer yet. But still, this is the moment Blink-182 ascend. And they ascend proudly, defiantly, and without an ounce of self-loathing or fear of betraying anybody. I brought up all that Green Day, Jawbreaker, face-to-face sellout stuff, Because what makes the Blink-182 chapter about Dude Ranch in Dan's sellout book so effective is that Blink-182 don't really give a shit about selling out or risking the ire of their early adopter fans or antagonizing maximum rock and roll or any of that. Not in a snotty or elitist or malevolent way. It's not that they don't know or don't care about that controversy. But Blink-182 just want to make the hugest sounding music they can for the hugest audience available. They want all those clueless, radio-addicted, MTV-watching, flyover-state kids in all those suburban homes. They want me at 19. And they got me. Did you know that line was, the charade, it won't last? I've loved this song for 24 years, and I never looked that up. No idea what I thought it was all this time. Anyway, here's the other moment on Damn It that vaults Blink-182 to the God tier. Yes, the contemplative melancholy, sensitive guy section of the song. That simple little dynamic shift, a little quiet to make the loud louder. This is Blink-182 adding a change-up or maybe a slider. Sports metaphors. Sometimes that's all it takes. Sometimes that's the key to unlocking all those suburban homes. Perhaps Dude Ranch. I can't believe the salad dressing theory. That's super gross. That pretty much ruined my day. Perhaps Dude Ranch is a record you know well or know by heart. Maybe you know the song's pathetic, voyeur, degenerate, and dick lips by heart. If you want to hear this record in a new way, in a quieter way that'll make the loud way louder, I heartily encourage you to check out Blink-182's Dude Ranch as played by Colleen Green. I believe that to be the full title. Colleen Green is a pop-punk singer-songwriter based in L.A. She covered Dude Ranch in full in 2019. My former Ringer colleague, Lindsay Zolads, called it an empathic exploration of the post-adolescent male psyche. 
and you can trust her. I'm digging the Colleen Green version quite a bit. It explains a few things. It brightens a few corners. There's a surface level where it's just funny to imagine the girl Mark Hoppus is singing in the song Apple Shampoo to, singing in the song herself. I know just where I stand, a boy trapped in the body of a man. But there are also, if you choose to explore them, deeper levels of exploration as well. Though maybe the surface level is enough. She's so important. I'm so retarded. Is it even punk rock if it's not a little problematic? Dude Ranch eventually went platinum. A million copies sold in the United States alone. That's not a Dookie type number. No. That is at most one-tenth of Dookie's number in the United States alone, actually. But it'll sure as hell get your band to the next record, which is a good thing when your band's next record is Enema of the State. I think I was driving when I heard What's My Age Again for the first time on the radio. I think I subconsciously started driving faster whenever the chorus, the guitar distortion kicked in. I do have a vague memory of my delight upon hearing these lines. For the very first time. I took her out. It was a Friday night. I walk alone to get the feeling right. Not those lines, actually. Did you know that line was I wore cologne to get the feeling right? For 22 years, I heard it as I walk alone to get the feeling right. And I figured it was, you know, impressionistic. I have no explanation for this. Whatever your personal musical definition of impressionistic is, this is the least impressionistic song in rock history. When we started making out and she took off my pants, but then I turned on the TV. And that's about the time she walked away from me. Those lines. Dollars to Donuts, I snorted with laughter the first time I heard, and she took off my pants. It's the infantile shock of that line. It's the more sophisticated shock of the lack of a rhyme in that line. Dollars to Donuts, though, my snort was inaudible because I'd already cranked up my car radio super loud. Scott Rayner is no longer Blink-182's drummer. On Enema of the State, he got kicked out and replaced roundabouts the time of the mythic poo-poo PP tour with Travis Barker. And ah, yes, here at long last is Blink-182's canonical drummer. I picture Travis Barker in my head as a shirtless Severe-looking, balding but it's awesome, majestically tattooed octopus where five of his arms are pounding on various drums and the other three arms are pouring immense quantities of Mountain Dew down his throat. Just this constant foosh. Tom DeLong in that Music Radar interview talked about how psyched he and Mark were when Travis joined the band and how intimidated they were as well. He said, we were nowhere near as good as Travis, but we got better. Did you know that line was, and are still more amused by prank phone calls? In my head, I always just went, prank phone calls. It's a revelation. But the final push to the summit, where what's my age again is concerned, comes when Blink-182 throws the change up. This is a sad song to me. 
This is a sad song to me in the loveliest, most ecstatic and affecting way. There is something akin to regret rattling in the bones of this song, even if it's a sorry, I'm not sorry sort of regret. You'll recall that in the What's My Age Again video, in which Mark, Tom, and Travis are streaking, they're naked the entire time, this is the precise moment in the video where they encounter Janine Lundemulder, the porn star, the sexy nurse, who also adorns the Enema of the State album cover. She's pulling on the blue glove. Yeah, but for me in that moment, hearing this song for the first time, I was ecstatic in a sad sort of way because I knew that Blink-182 got me. You might say nailed me. They nailed, they glorified my immaturity and the futility of fighting that immaturity and the futility that would result romantically and otherwise from my futility in fighting the immaturity. Because best case scenario, this is what it sounded like in my head in my mid-20s. And I mean this as a huge compliment to the band, if not so much a compliment to me. That's what it sounded like in my head. Or that's how I romanticized what it sounded like in my head. Please do not ask anyone who knew me at 21, 22, 23 what they think it sounded like in my head at that point. Or at this point. You get it. I am more or less ignoring here two other massive hit songs on Anima of the State, and I do feel bad. I go through phases where I put Adam's song on repeat for an hour or two. And this is another quiet makes the loud louder phenomenon where the ultra rare serious Blink-182 song benefits from that ultra rarity. An Adam song or a stay together for the kids hits 10 times harder just because of how anomalous it is. What I like most right now about Adam's song is Travis Barker, actually, and how he tastefully manages to still sound like a Mountain Dew chugging octopus, even on a slow song about contemplating suicide. Even when this band's at their gloomiest, old Travis is still back there banging on shit. I am also, for the most part, avoiding the matter of All the Small Things, which is a Tom song and the biggest hit on Enema of the State and their biggest chart hit ever, actually. Number six on the Billboard Hot 100, kept out of the top five by Santana Smooth at number five. Tough break. And it's also Blink-182's most streamed song on Spotify. The truth, my truth, is that All the Small Things is my personal, like, 23rd favorite Blink-182 song. I've got nothing against it, but I couldn't say what makes it the song for a lot of other people. Or maybe I could say, I concede that the specific vocal cadence of all the small things is infectious. You want to shout along with it. You want to pump your fist along with it and then put your fist through a wall and then run through that wall. Work sucks. I know. She left me But what I like most about all the small things right now is that line, the roses by the stairs. I used to actively dislike that line, too cheap of a rhyme. What can I say? I'm sophisticated. But now I see, now I hear the roses by the stairs as the happy ending to the sad story, What's My Age Again, is telling. What's My Age Again is Mark Hoppus putting underwear on his head and going, I'm immature, I'm immature. But all the small things is Tom DeLonge proving that immaturity is not necessarily the antithesis of romance. He found love. 
he found a woman who cares, despite his own exhaustively documented immaturity. And whatever is coming for him and the band in the next 22 years, my impulse is to leave Tom there, infantile but truly loved, clutching his roses by the stairs. But enough about him. Let me tell you about the funniest thing anybody's ever said to me. So a while back, my wife and I were watching Normal People, right? The Hulu series based on the Sally Rooney novel, some zeitgeist action. It's the prestigious, sexy, depressed Irish romantic drama. They have sex 10% of the time and they're depressed the other 90%. I'm on the couch watching Normal People with my wife and my wife's on her phone looking up if the sexy couple and normal people, if the actors have been in anything else, any movies or TV shows previously. And my wife's just talking out loud while I'm watching the show. And she looks up the main guy and she says, he was in a sausage advert. And there's like a 10 second pause. And then my wife says, I'd like to see your sausage advert. And it's the funniest thing anybody's ever said to me. Maybe you had to be there, but I'm sure glad you weren't. If people find you too immature, too body, find somebody bodier than you. That's my advice. Or if you need symmetry in your life, find somebody who finds the campfire scene in Blazing Saddles exactly as funny as you do. Our guest today is Dan Ozzy, author of the new book, Sell Out, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore in 1994-2007. Thanks so much for being here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, there's 11 chapters in this book, 11 bands, 11 major label debuts, 11 debates about whether to sign with a major label. Is it fair to say that Blink-182 care the least about <laughs> selling out or alienating any semblance of the underground? Like, not in a mean way, but they seem pretty chill about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was like their socioeconomic upbringing or hmm. like geographic upbringing or just like maybe it was just a few years after this like sellout craze that hit like Green Day in Berkeley but like yeah. they really did not care <laughs> and you know it's funny they recorded Dude Ranch with Mark Trombino who was mm -hmm. in Drive Like Jehu and uh, you know masterful uh, studio engineer but he, he told me he was like they were the first band that I worked with that was not ashamed of wanting to be a big band. Like he's like, even my band, we were <laughs> right, like, uh, right. you know, like whatever, for whatever reason, you yeah. just had this like punk guilt, but they were the first band. And Mark told me like, no, like we, we love our band. We want people to hear us on the radio. Like why, would, right. why wouldn't we, you know? That does sound like a suburban approach. I to think this so. Issue. Right. Like maybe yeah. that's what it was like green, you know, green day got so much shit, but green day was God. from Rodeo. A right. Really, run down town in, outside of the Bay Area. And Blink was more like San Diego, like more middle-class suburban. Maybe it didn't really matter as much to them. I don't know. The Green Day chapter was traumatizing to me. Like I knew all that stuff, but just, and they they turned out all right. But like the fact <laughs> yeah, they did they, okay. they got kicked out of like their home, you know, it really was so intense and so sad to me that like they had to give up what they had to get what they wanted, you know, in a yeah. way that it doesn't seem like anybody else quite did. 
And you would think like that wouldn't matter too much because within a year they sold just in the U.S. three million <laughs> records, won a right. Grammy, could play yep. anywhere that you know, played Madison Square Garden, played anywhere they wanted. And you would think that it wouldn't matter to them, but it seemed like it really did. And right. I don't know what. I guess that's just like human nature of like, you know, ninety nine people tell you you're the mm-hmm. greatest thing ever, and then one guy one is like, doesn't. "No, you suck." Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just gonna personally affect you. I don't know. Yeah, it's like their teenage girlfriend broke up with them, you know, and their teenage girlfriend was just a place in Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, they got they got dumped and they <laughs> yeah. never got over their ex. Yeah. Uh, the vehement argument against selling out, against signing with a major label, is that a musical argument at all? Like Green Day go from Kerplunk on Lookout to Dookie on a major label. Are there Green Day fans who think Kerplunk is a better record and like signing with a major ruined Green Day musically? I bet you could find people still who are like <laughs> clinging to the Lookout Records releases, but like, right. I mean, Dookie is they should teach that record in studio <laughs> engineering college. Right. It's like a perf, like there's no denying that that is a perfectly recorded yeah. album and their success was hanged on them releasing it the way that they did. Right. So I don't know, like, but I, I do love, I love Kerplunk, but there's just no denying it from a sonic perspective. Like these are, sure. these are better records. I'm sorry. You know? Yeah. Because uh, for me, like the pop part of pop punk is as important as the punk, right? And it's a lot easier to make a truly great punk record in your garage than to make a truly great pop punk record in your garage. Like, is What's My Age Again a totally different song on an Epitaph Records budget or with Epitaph Records promotion? Um, so we're doing like the hypothetical. I guess I we know. are. Well, there's a section in my book where there was like, it seemed like a brief fork in the road where Blink could have gone to Epitaph Records. And they wanted to. And they did because they liked Epitaph. It was like yeah. a Southern California label that Pennywise, their buddies were on there and mm-hmm. no effects, all these bands that they loved. But had they gone to Epitaph, I think that they probably would have done pretty well for a while. Like they mm-hmm. would have been a big Epitaph band, but there's, I don't think that they would have hit that offspring level. <laughs> And I think really they needed, they really needed at that point in their career, a sensible producer. Mm -hmm. And like they got that with um, Trombino who like, because if you listen to the, like the first album, the Cheshire Cat album, (laughs) I think I described it in my book as just being like punky fragments stitched together for three minutes and then they're over. But like with Dude Ranch, you could tell like, oh, they got some songwriting help. There Mm -hmm. are verses and choruses here. There's dynamics, yeah. Yeah, totally. And then, uh, you know, the next album, Enema of the State, like they had Jerry Finn. And that's when you can see like what you're talking about, the like pop side of it. Like they wrote pop songs then that were just very Mm -hmm. fast in their style. But like really... I think that, like, had they remained on Epitaph, they might not have gotten that studio support to, like, take them to the pop level. I would guess. That would be my guess. I was thinking about Bad Religion, which had a similar sort of arc. Like, they jumped from Epitaph to a major, and then four or five records, they jumped back Which is funny, because it was his own label. Like, he left (laughs) his own label to go. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's how punk he was. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I love Bad Religion sellout period, though. Like the Grey Race, Stranger Than Fiction. Like those are fantastic records to me. Like, do you think the most diehard Bad Religion fans are obliged to grit their teeth through the major label stuff? Like, given how political that band is, mm-hmm. how political was that decision, do you think? For um, them? Well, first of all, I super agree with you. I, yeah. Stranger Than Fiction is unapologetically my favorite. Bad Religion album. I love it. Thank you for not apologizing. I'll tell you why in a second, but I I definitely think that existed and I can tell you exactly how I know that. I remember when I first started going to shows at this like hole in the wall place called The Joint in Staten Island, there was Mm -hmm. a guy there. This probably was like around 1998 or 1999 and he had a worker's jacket on and it had a Bad Religion patch on his chest. You got to find that guy. Above Bad Religion, he wrote old. Like he just, like he wanted people to know, like, I just like old bad religion. I don't like this new stuff. And so, yeah, I think for sure. But, but on the, on the flip side of that coin, the reason Stranger Than Fiction is my favorite bad religion record is because that's the one that I got first. My mom's friend got it for me for Christmas in 1995, I think. And because I asked for it. And like, I'm sure Bad Religion, you know, had to reconcile their politics of going to a big corporation, but they probably did it to reach a bigger audience. Like they hit a limit on Epitaph. They wanted to reach young kids who had like this new interest in punk from Green Day or whatever. And I was one of those kids. So it worked. Like the experiment worked on me. They went to a major label to like rope in these new fans. I can tell you from firsthand experience that worked, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess like a lot of it is just reconciling if it's worth it, you know? Like, do we try to get a bigger audience? Is that worth it to us to like alienate some of our existing audience? I don't know, but still love that record. Every band should sell patches where one is like new band and the other is old I think you should just have to, when you start at a major label, you should just have to have all new iconography and logos just so people know like which era they're supporting, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Um, I have to say I've never understood what makes all the small things like far and away the biggest ever Blink-182 song, like streaming wise, chart wise. Like I don't dislike it, but like I vastly prefer What's My Age Again or Damn It or like 12 other songs. Like what percentage of this song's popularity is just everyone loves to sing work sucks i know <laughs> maybe i i also agree with you that i think i think it's not the best single from it i think what's my age again is better video too yeah um, but i don't know like i think maybe it has something to do with this song was really like the peak of their popularity like this was yeah. the they had three singles uh what's my age again this one and then adam song Adam song yeah and this one seemed like it really captured like the highest high of of blink 182's mm-hmm. career so maybe that was like you know they say people you, you tend to like fall in love with whenever you found it like you right. know so same like, with you and bad religion yeah right. exactly yeah. so like maybe this is when the most amount of people f- discovered blink 182 no, I and think that just, makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I the video, all the small things video, of course, is like a boy band parody that also acknowledges that like Blink One Eighty Two are basically a boy band. Like I always pictured TRL in this era as like all the Backstreet Boys and Britney fans over here, and all the Corn and Eminem fans on the other. And like Blink One Eighty Two is like the exact perfect midpoint. Like were they the one TRL staple that everyone could agree on, or at least not fight about? Yeah, they were, I mean, they were, their manager, Rick, told me that they were at TRL so frequently that, like, 
You know, like everybody, they they basically work there. You know, just People like everybody would him, right? Yeah, yeah they'd be like, "Hey, yeah. Rick, what's up?" Um, but you know, it's funny because the reason that I did want to do this song for a songs that explain the '90s podcast is because, like, yeah. this was at the very, very, very end of the '90s, right? And I, right. I think you could look at it as sort of like putting a cap on the '90s and and bringing in what came next, especially for not just pop culture, but for MTV, because like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like there was the late nineties, there was so much of this boy band ubiquity, like Backstreet yeah. Boys and sync, like all this stuff. And, and there was also like, at that point we had gotten so much of it that things were, that were making fun of it were popular. Like <laughs> the Slim Shady LP came out yes, in February of 99. Right, right. And that was a lot about how they hated, you know, mm-hmm. Christina Aguilera. And exactly. Like, oh, you know, so there was just like, it was, kind of cool at that point to not like boy bands and then blink 182 this video i think comes out right at the very very end of 99 and like basically kind of put the cap on the boy band craze and then into the 2000s we had this different thing that was popular on mtv that they really helped usher in like i do not think it is a coincidence that blink 182 being so popular 1999 into 2000 on mtv and then October of 2000, MTV starts Jackass. You know, like, I don't think it's a coincidence. <laughs> that that like, is a spiritual Yeah, match. I mean, like, Absolutely. Blink, you know, Tom Green came a little bit before oh, God, Blink. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then it was Blink, and then it was Jackass. And it was, like, this new era of, like, shirtless white guys behaving badly, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah, like, I just think that, like, if you're going to analyze the 90s, you have to figure out when they ended and this was Blink kind of like shutting the door on the decade, in my right. opinion. But they did it cheerfully. Like Eminem, like truly seemed to hate, you know, teen pop, and like he was so like everything he did, it was so mean spirited, like Britney, Christina, whatever. Whereas like the Blink One Eighty Two, like that video, it seems playful. Like it seems like again, they don't really care about that divide between you know teen pop and pop punk. Like it feels like they didn't waste a lot of time performatively hating teen pop or what they weren't supposed to be yeah i mean but eminem's entire like you know thing is like i'm gonna kill you you know like, yeah. i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna hang you from a thread whatever that's, you know that's like, true uh and blink with is like entire thing is not you know that so you couldn't really apply yeah it wasn't as much violent imagery to apply it was <laughs> it was for sure playful it was just like hey what if we did the same video as the backstreet boys but right. you know we had goofy awesome powers teeth or whatever yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, I wonder if those guys, like, I wonder if Backstreet Boys ever, I wonder what their take on that is. I'm sure they were relieved it wasn't meaner, you know, yeah. I have to think on the spectrum of people making fun of the Backstreet Boys at that exact point, that was pretty minor, you yeah, know, totally. like that's, yeah, I, I'd have to think they were stoked. It, it was like very Mad Magazine, Yeah, you know? Yeah, there we go. Just Mad like the Magazine, Wayne Street Boys. Jackass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The um, Wax Street Boys. Oh, no. <laughs> that's good. That's really good, actually. They should. I wrote um, for Mad Magazine. I didn't never told you about that. I was that's, there. That's, <laughs> I would tell everyone if I had written for Mad Magazine. Yeah. I, I respect that. Um, in your Blink-182 chapter, you talk about the first years of the Warp Tour and how important the Warp Tour was to Blink-182, but also like how tenuous that first year, those first couple years were. Like The Warp Tour guy, Kevin Lyman, he says, like we had no doubt in Sublime that first year, but nobody knew them. Like I think it's really crazy. Like I I think people remember warped now as this colossal 
corporatized, like compromised and like inevitable thing. But are, are people forgetting now, like how ahead of its time that festival was? Um, <laughs> whenever I think of the Warped Tour, I think of, you know, that scene in The Simpsons when Bart is doing a book report on Libya and that he didn't prepare <laughs> for. And he's just like, in in conclusion, Libya is a land of many contrasts. Yes, Thank you. right. Um, so Warped Tour is a tour of many contrasts. <laughs> like, yes, there, there were a lot of negative things that came out of it, but it was pioneering in the sense that, like, yeah. Kevin had the idea to, like, package this surf skate punk thing and, like, bring it on the road to middle America, you know? And mm-hmm. but even before it got criticisms for being like a corporate festival, yeah. you know, in its first couple of years, it got a different kind of criticism. Like it got more punk criticism where hmm. uh, a lot of punk kids were criticizing it for basically taking package tours and like overshadowing the local stuff that was happening, you know, like if it was, yeah. if Warp Tour was coming through town, that was like taking away business from like the club shows and stuff like that. Okay. Um, then the criticisms evolved into like <laughs> much bigger things. And then towards yes. the end, it was like, it seemed more controversy than festival at that point. Yeah. Right. But yeah, so like the, the early year, like, uh, you know, if it had been just like one year, if Warped Tour had just been that single first year, mm-hmm. it might be looked back on and being like a crazy, like yeah. no doubt and sublime. And That's like, wild. yeah. yeah. I, I I saw my first Warped Tour in middle America somewhere in the 90s. And I saw Rocket from the Crypt, you know, speaking of San Diego. Mm-hmm. And I also saw the Alcoholics, that rap group, the Alcoholics, who rap about how much they love alcohol. Like early yeah. warp tour was just chaos. And also like pretty awesome if you were a teenager in middle America, at least. I guess you had to be there, but I was and it was rad. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Eminem. I remember the 1999 warp tour. I saw Blink there actually. And yeah. um, I think Dropkick Murphys were playing. Ooh. And uh, I'm like looking in the pit and I just see this like blonde head just oh, throwing no. elbows and I looked and it was Eminem. And I, you, he, you, at that time, he no was just way. still, I mean, he had just put out some shady LP. So he was not yet, he was getting yeah. bigger, but he wasn't okay. like so famous that he couldn't leave his trailer. Okay. Um, and I like, I'm like, man, that was cool. And then I like told friends about this on the way home and they like, convinced me they're like no that's that wasn't him i'm like i know what i saw <laughs> like, I, I don't saw know if i believe there. you you saw well, eminem moshing to the dropkick murphy i did in the 19- that's incredible if you go on youtube there uh-huh. is a little like mtv uh behind the scenes warp tour thing where they kind of followed eminem around and uh-huh. it was really interesting to watch because again like he had put out this album he was getting kind of more well known but he was going around to kids just being like Hey, what's up? My name is Eminem. And and some of them knew him and some of them were like, oh yeah, right, right. But it was just so <laughs> interesting to watch him at the cusp of fame, like yeah, trying to win. Or, he, like, like you say, before he couldn't leave, you know. Yeah. His just like house. literally trying to like sell himself on kids. Right. It was so funny. What do you remember about Blink, if you remember anything? Uh the that that warp tour performance? Yeah, the 99 warp tour. I remember it so distinctly, and I don't yeah. know why. You know, that was the that was the year that they they had Damn It in the bag for like a year. And now this mm-hmm. is when they started dropping their new singles and they were getting bigger. And especially sure. in the Warp Tour crowd, they were getting really big. Like they mm-hmm. were, you know, another band that just like on the cusp of just being ex- exploding, being huge. And mm-hmm. I remember at that time, I thought I was like too 
I, even though I was like a teenager, I was like, though that's too kiddie for me because I was like into <laughs> bad religion, you know? Sure, yes. That's, so there's I a difference. Was, my yeah. girlfriend at the time, Tammy, she was like, I want to go up and watch Blink-182. And I was like, great, have a good time. I'm going to chill in the back over here. And yeah. she went in, I think not realizing how many people had gotten into them or like how right. much more popular than they were than the last time we'd seen them. And she came out in like 10 minutes and she was covered in dust and she was like, couldn't breathe. And she yeah. was just like, I got knocked down and nobody would pick me up. Oh, and like, damn were, it. it was crazy and I couldn't breathe and I lost my camera in there. And like, oh, it was and so that like, that was the last time that I remember seeing them where it was just like, this can't like maintain. This is right. about to be like huge. And then they did. They, that's, that was the year that like, uh, towards the end of the year, they just blew up when those singles came out. And uh, yeah, I remember. I remember. That's a really funny moment in their career, just being yeah. like about to hit their head on the ceiling. You know, how many times have you seen them total? Probably not that many. Um, yeah. The last time I saw them, I was working at Noisy, and this was maybe 2016 or 17 or so. It was like after they had brought Ski. So the in. new lineup, right? Yeah, right. right. And they they were playing like a Good Morning America, <laughs> one of those like morning in Central yeah. Park shows that they have like in the summer, they have like Kelly Clarkson sings like four songs right, and they aired right. on Good Morning America. And I went to that and it was so miserable <laughs> because one, it's not a good to, vibe. Yeah. You have to get there at like 5.30 in the no, morning. No, it's terrible. Uh, yeah. Morning punk you, is not a, well, not a thing. Terrible. And then, and then it's the worst way to like, if you think you're going to see them perform, it's the worst possible way to do that because they, you go there and you're just waiting in a field and then they're like, just standing there. They're just standing around, a lot of dead time. And then finally some producer's like, okay, and back in five, four, three, two. And then they're like, do no, 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 no. And they'll play all the small <laughs> things. And then everybody's like, yeah, that's great. And then they cut to commercial and then oh, you just have to stand around for stops. another 10 minutes. It's oh, just God. the worst way to see it. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, that was the last time I saw them. I do that record, that first new lineup record from 2016, I think. I think about the song Built This Pool a lot. <laughs> it's the 16-second long one. I want to see some naked dudes. That's why I built this pool. Like It's funny that you saw them in 99, you're like, I'm more mature than this. <laughs> yeah. And they're still doing it in 2021. But like it it works for them. Like everybody else gets older and they stay the same age. Like, how is that? Well, happening? it's funny too, because then Tom will go do Angels and Airwaves <laughs> where he's like a serious artist who he was very serious you know yes. to the jam or whatever he was and and everybody's just kind of like hmm all right <laughs> we're not ready for you to grow uh, up yet tom yeah this makes me uncomfortable and then you know he gets back and it's like i want to see wieners in my pool and everybody's like this is great this is perfect <laughs> um i'm also traumatized by the jawbreaker chapter in your book i like I know the challenge you have here is to convince young people how much selling out used to matter to young people then. But like how much how big a struggle is it to convey how this process, this jump, like used to just destroy bands? It was tough. I don't know how like a young person will read this book and if it will even make sense to them. Yeah. All I could do is just like point to things that were written about them or mm -hmm. things that people remember or, or how, yeah. you know, ticket sales went down or whatever it was. But like, all I can do is like point to it and be like, yes, it happened. Like people cared <laughs> right. so much about what 
label a band was on that they would sit on the floor if that's what it took you know yeah. like while they were playing they would just sit on the floor or spit in their mouth spit in their spit mouth in, see Jesus. i put that in the book but i couldn't tell if that was just normal like punk show behavior or if that was like a reaction to that but yeah they got like spit on and you know there was yeah. this punk guy who had protested uh green day show and in, in um Right. Where was that? Petaluma? And they, he came to their show as well and handed out flyers that said, like... <laughs> the flyer guy, I yeah. Should have, I wish I could have included the flyer in the, like, a, a picture of it, but right. I don't know, like, what the rights are for it. But, yeah, it yeah. was, like, dollar signs oh, on, a, on a Xerox page, and it said, like, we are asking you to walk out on Jawbreaker, <laughs> you know? Jesus. I think that's the old bad religion patch guy. I think it's... Like, that <laughs> yeah. must be... The same guy. I, God, what's that guy doing? I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> He's podcasting. Um, Absolutely. D- does it surprise you that Travis Barker has emerged, like has endured, is like America's official rock and roll drummer? Like he always strikes me as like your favorite rapper's favorite rocker like what is it's and now he's you know he's he's in a high profile relationship. It's just yeah. a bizarre career and personal like public arc. And you know what's so funny about it too, right? Is that it doesn't, it's all based on his moves, I guess you could say, or like his decisions because he never says anything, <laughs> right? Like he's, he's, I, I he read really his, doesn't. I read his entire memoir and a lot of it was just like, and I've helped somebody write a memoir. So I knew yeah. how hard it must have been on this like poor <laughs> ghostwriter. So it must have just been so hard to like, he just doesn't. <laughs> it's just I, I could just imagine what it was like for his poor ghostwriter having to like get material from him being like okay Travis you know like when you were 16 your mom passed away that must have been really hard do you want to like what do you remember about that and he must have just been like yeah I put my drum kit flat like a lot of people <laughs> tilt it but I like to have it flat you know like he just he just laser seems like focused he, yeah. he's a great I mean like he is such a great drummer like an athlete's yeah. discipline on the on the drums but like yeah he, i don't think that he does a lot of self-reflection or maybe he does and he just <laughs> does not like talk about it no very much. yeah he keeps it um, to himself but i don't know so like all of the things that has happened have happened in the last couple of years have based on like the projects he's chosen to work on or the yeah. women he's chosen to date because like he never like when was the last time you were like did you hear did you see what travis barker said Tweeted, yeah, never, right, right. he never ever does that. It's always yeah. just like I. Here's a picture of him kissing whoever, whatever gender. Who who is he dating? It's Courtney Kardashian. Courtney, Courtney Kardashian. So yeah, like look at this picture, and that will go viral. Right. But it's never anything that the man has said. It's only like what he chooses to like work on or be yeah. around. Well, if you listen to like the Blink-182 live album, I think it's from 2000. I think it's the next year. And like, it's just the entire album is just, just Tom and Mark just, just bantering. And you can like his, Travis's silence is just very loud. He's, you know, like, but he's so, he's really smart in that regard because yeah, yeah. Mark and Tom already had this like perfectly balanced banter. Mm-hmm. Like it yeah. was half of what made them appealing. You know, it wasn't just their Probably music. Probably more, it was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was like watching a stand-up show, you know, and they they had like a perfectly balanced uh, give and take. And yeah. Travis got a job drumming for them and he, he contributed a lot to the band musically. I really, mm-hmm. truly don't think that we would be talking about them right now if, if it wasn't for Travis. I agree. But, he knew what he was doing and that like, he's yeah. just like, I'm going to shut up and look 
look cool in the background. I'm going to show pretty, my tattoos. Pretty cool. And my, my high cheekbones. And I'm going to look good in the photos, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut. He's really like, didn't try to taint the, uh, yeah. the chemistry at the all. The dynamic, right. And it is funny, like from a technical aspect, how much better he is. And like, you can, you know, Tom will say this. Like I saw some quote, like Tom was like, yeah, he was way better than us when he joined, but like we got a little better, you know, but it's just, it's, it's just Tom and Mark now chasing after him, trying to keep up with him. It's just sort of the perfect setup. For sure. I think Tom and Tom and Mark had a, had a mentality from the beginning of like, yeah, that's good enough. Like it's good enough for punk. <laughs> and, um, you know, exactly. When, but then yes. they started working with Trombino and Trombino was like, mm-hmm. no, actually that's not good enough. Like you have to do better. And they were yes. like, oh, okay. I didn't. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, and then they got, you know, Travis and I don't, I don't know that Travis ever said like, Hey, you got to play better. But like right. when you're playing around Travis, just through osmosis, you're going to get example. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, they had like these little, not like, uh, you know, mentors, but these people sort of like teaching them to spurring sort of like, them along. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great, Dan. Thanks so much. We really appreciate you talking. Oh, thank you. And I'm, I, I've said this before we started, but Rob's gumshoe reporting is in. <laughs> In my book, and it was so invaluable. I had, I had, when I told you, I had forgotten that when, so it's, I hope I even remember this right, but like they took, Green Day took those records back from Lookout because Lookout stopped paying them royalties. Mm -hmm. And so they let it go forever. But I mean, what is this, like 2005, 2006, Green Day finally goes, takes uh, 1039, whatever that compilation is, and Kerplunk back, you know? And like, I, I, you know, I was living in in the East Bay at the time and that was this huge traumatic moment. But like, after everything Green Day had been through, I didn't get the sense that everyone was mad at them. Like, I think Lookout was was struggling enormously. And and it was like, they did, Green Day deserves to take these records back. For sure, I think people were looking with an eye more on look out themselves because it was just like you you made how many million dollars and you can't make this label work like what right yeah they they did pretty well for themselves for a while there so Yeah. yeah that's but thank you i appreciate it thanks so much for talking dan oh thank you so much Thanks very much to our guest this week, Dan Ozzie. Thanks, as always, to our producers, Isaac Lee and Justin Sales. And thanks very much to you for listening. And now, without further ado, here are Blink-182 with What's My Age Again. See you next week. <laughs>